0: You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Well, good morning. How are we doing? Good, so good to hear from you. Uh, For those of you watching and uh, listening online, thank you for tuning in. This morning is uh, maybe a little more unique for this sermon series. Uh, It's unique if for no other reason than it is the only sermon in this eight-week series where we are going to be uh, revealing, unveiling, however you want to think about it, a coffee cup with no actual Bible verse on it. Uh, for this series, you know, I, I wanted to choose cups that had actual verses on them with the intent of teaching through the actual context. Because so often, uh, when you find a Bible verse on the side of a coffee mug, it's usually thrown out there, as we've discovered, uh, to communicate something that is probably not actually what that verse communicates in its biblical context. But this morning, rather than looking at a verse that is used out of context with regularity, we're going to be examining a word that is overwhelmingly used out of context, a word that is, I think, vastly misunderstood, misused, misapplied in our modern culture. So we're gonna jump in and do our reveal because we have a lot to cover. This was actually, uh, if you were paying attention to the bumper, the last cup that uh, our one and only Holly Franklin in that video uh, pulled out to put coffee in this morning. Here it is. It's a coffee cup that simply says our favorite word blessed. Mm, yes, yes, yes. We love this word, do we not? We love it. We'll throw it around all over the place. You'll hear it sometimes uh, in, the, in the hallways on Sunday morning. Someone might say to someone else, hey, how are you doing this morning? And someone might say, blessed. <laughs> or if they're really wanting to church it up, they'll say, blessed and highly favored right? Yes, we love it. We love it. On social media, you'll see this word a lot as well. It may be a picture of a beach or uh, the Eiffel Tower with a sunset behind it or a sweet picture with a family and children and uh, maybe an early morning on the lake with the sun rising. And and under those pictures, you'll see the the caption, right? Hashtag blessed or, or blessed life. And again, Like several of the the last week's uh, verses that we've covered, uh, this is not necessarily a wrong way of using the Word. It is certainly a blessing to us. When we get to do things that we've always wanted to do or see things that we've always wanted to see, James chapter 1 verse 17 says that every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Anytime we receive a good gift, we can trust that it is a blessing from God because every good and perfect gift comes from Him. And of course, we believe, biblically speaking, that children are a blessing as well. Psalm 127, verse three through five says, "Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward, uh, like arrows in the hand of a warrior. on the children are the children of one's youth. And then here it is verse five, "Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them." So, so it's not wrong to infer that children are a blessing or that you're blessed because you have a family or that you're blessed because some good things came your way, none of these examples are are necessarily wrong. But when we think about what it means to be blessed uh, from the New Testament and specifically from Jesus himself, we're gonna find a pretty radically different message. Jesus, it seems like, had something very different to say with regard to what it looks like to be blessed that really radically challenges our ideas of a blessed life. Now, when we read the Gospels, what we find out is that the blessed life of a disciple looks different than we might imagine, or different than maybe what a, a preacher on TV told you it looked like, right? And if you're watching me on TV right now, I mean actual TV, not YouTube, uh, this, this doesn't count. Um, so this morning, here's what I want to do. I, I want to examine Jesus' teaching over what it means to actually be blessed specifically from Matthew chapter five in what is the greatest sermon ever preached, a sermon that we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, So if you have your Bibles, open them to Matthew chapter five. That's where we're gonna be for the remainder of our morning. The Sermon on the Mount actually spans the course of almost three chapters. It begins in Matthew 5, one. It goes all the way to Matthew seven, verse 27. So almost three whole chapters. Uh, We're not going to cover the entire Sermon on the Mount this morning. We we would have nowhere near the time necessary for that. Instead, what I want us to do is focus on the first 11 verses of chapter 5 in a section that we often refer to as the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes, probably familiar With this term, if you've done any sort of cursory study on the gospels, it's a word beatitude that we derive from the Latin beatitudo, which is a translation of the Greek makarios, which is just English, the word blessed, the blessed statements of Jesus. And there are specifically eight of them, eight statements that Jesus makes with regard to what it means to have a blessed life. And so what I want us to do is I want us to reconsider this morning, what it means when we use this word blessed. I want us to look at the words of Jesus in the Beatitudes, in the blessed statements, and I want us to reconsider what it means to to have a blessed life. There are eight indicators of of a blessed life in this passage, and as we go through it, what I wanna ask you to do is evaluate your life up against these indicators. I want you to evaluate your present life up against the things that Jesus says make you blessed. Because here's what I suspect will happen. I'm almost certain this will happen. That as we read this passage, as we walk through this, I suspect that there are gonna be some of you here this morning who think that your life is blessed despite the fact that there are no indicators of such a thing. You think that you're blessed according to your definition of blessing or maybe Instagram's definition of blessing, but maybe not Jesus' definition of blessing. And so this passage is going to challenge you a little bit, which is a good thing because this is how we grow as Christians. On the contrary, some of you may not think that you are blessed at all. And after evaluating Jesus' words You're going to discover this morning that perhaps you are, you just didn't realize it. And so my hope for you this morning as we walk through this passage is that it would spark some amount of gratitude in your life, that that you would be able to see that God is actually active in your life, that he's been far kinder to you than you have realized. So let's evaluate together, how do I know if I am blessed? It's a great question. There are eight indicators. Here's the first one. I know I am blessed when I stop trying to do things in my own power. We're going to just start off with a bang. Verse 5. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor. Sorry, verse 3. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, if we're being honest about this, uh, this is not the first thing you think of when you think of being blessed. Nothing about the word poor is positive in our culture, in our time. Blessed people are not poor, they're rich. They're rich in spirit, they're rich in material goods, they're rich in personal security. Poor people, that's a weakness, right? Not a strength, certainly not a blessing. No one thinks, look at my poverty, how blessed am I, right? No one thinks this. But according to Jesus, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, now what does this mean? Simply put, it means that this is referring to someone who has come to realize that apart from God, they are completely destitute. There's a realization that I have have a need for God, that there is an absolute dependence upon the Lord in my life, that without him I am destitute, I, I have nothing. To be poor in spirit means to recognize that actually what spiritual life I do have, I only have because it has been given to me as a gift from God himself. Paul spells this out very clearly in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And I'm going to just read it. It's a little bit of a longer passage, but it, it, it is, Paul says it better than I will. Uh, and so we're going to just let the word speak here for a moment. Uh, but this is Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. Listen to what he says here. This is powerful stuff. One of the most powerful parts of Ephesians, in my opinion. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He's talking about you, Christ followers. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's El Diablo, by the way, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and here it is, we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So we're in dire straits here. We're in bad shape apart from the Lord, but look at verse 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, look what he did, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved." To be poor in spirit means to understand that apart from God, I have nothing, that I am spiritually dead, I am spiritually bankrupt, that I am entirely lacking, that I can bring nothing to the table because I have nothing to bring. And therefore, I must be dependent upon Him who is able to make me alive. And the result of that is, here's what happens. I stop trying to do things in my own power. I realize I don't have power. I don't really have any power at all. The 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous state it this way, this is step one, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol in that context, but over whatever it is, fill in the blank, that our lives had become unmanageable. You see, that when I operate out of my own power, my own self-reliance, this belief that somehow if I just, you know, just take life by the reins and pull myself up by my own bootstraps, I'm going to be able to get it done. I will run my life into the ground every single time. Now, now check this out. It may take a while. Some of you are very self-sufficient. It's impressive. You're doing great right now. And I mean right now, you're doing great. But that bill is going to come due one day. Some guys come to us you know, with, with their lives falling apart in their 50s and in their 60s and in their 70s because it just took a little bit longer than some of us to really run things into the ground. They were really good at holding it together for a while. They had a lot of personal strength. There's one guy right now that hates me and the staff and this church with a fiery passion because he spent majority of his life thinking he could do whatever he wanted to do with no consequences and for a long time, he got away with it. And because he got away with it for such a long time, he believed the lie that he was actually in control. And when everything fell apart, he needed someone to blame. So he blames the church because he can't bring himself to take responsibility for his own actions because he still hasn't figured out yet blessed are the poor in spirit. Because, check this out, when you are in that frame of mind of thinking that I can do things on my own, it is so hard to figure out how to admit powerlessness over the very sin that is now destroying you, when your life becomes so unmanageable, and yet it's still so difficult to acknowledge that you're the problem, that's actually the opposite of blessing. Can we agree to that? When you get to that point, that's the opposite of blessing. You're not blessed at that point. No one would look at that and go, hashtag blessed. Jesus says, no, no, blessed are the poor in spirit. The ones who have figured out, they're not in control, but there is one who is, and so I'm going to submit my life to him and stop trying to do things out of my own power. Second indicator of a blessed life, when I grieve over the effects of sin, when I grieve over the effects of sin, verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, Jesus says, for they shall be comforted. I love this this word mourn in the Greek. It's the word pentheo. Uh, It's a word that means something like to lament or regret. So this is not really talking about somebody who's sad or melancholy. This is talking about a kind of grief that strikes at the core of a person. And it's not really talking about grief over personal loss either. This is really talking about, uh, in the context of, of Matthew's gospel, grief over loss that is a result of the effects of sin just sort of on a general global level. Everyone, the reality is, everyone suffers in this life to some degree because of sin. We get sick, we die, we suffer violence and ridicule, people suffer from poverty and persecution and war. That's a big one right now in the Ukraine. uh, There are people uh, who are suffering as a result of war, families that are being broken apart. Children have lost their parents, parents have lost their children. The world, because of Genesis chapter three, is a harsh place to live in. And, and, and here's, here's the deal, it's easy to blame all sorts of things for it, isn't it? Some people will blame religion for these issues. You know, well, the only reason we have wars is because we have religion, right? Or politics, that's another one. The only reason we have wars and poverty is because of politics. No, the only reason we have wars and poverty is because of people. We live in a fallen world. And the reality is, is we will always lose in this world. And rather than be angry about it or blame other people for it, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn over it. Blessed are those who, who mourn over it. And what does he say will happen to them? They'll be comforted. What if I told you that God created you in such a way that when you mourn, genuinely mourn, that you were designed biologically to invite comfort into your life. What if I told you that? That biologically speaking, you were made by your creator to welcome comfort in the midst of grief. I was doing a uh, a little deep dive this week because I I, I read something that really sparked my attention and and I was interested in this, um, that there are three kinds of tears that your eyes produce as a human being. Three different types. Uh, the first one is called a basal tear. Uh, and this is a mixture of like mucus and salt and oil. And and uh, it, it is what kind of holds the, the tears in place in your eyes, right? This is a... Um it, it, you, your eyes are always, uh, they're never dry, right? They're always lubricated with this, this basal tear. And because of the oil and the mucus, it doesn't drip out of your eyes the whole time. It kind of stays put, right? Very helpful, uh, normal part of your biology. The second kind of tear is, is what we would refer to as an irritant tear. You could probably figure out what kind of tear this is. It's a kind of tear that your eye produces when something is in it. Right? Sand gets in it or or, uh, if you're chopping an onion, something like that, uh, your eyes will produce tears that help flush them out and keep them clear so that they're not irritated the entire time. But there's a third kind of tear called the emotional tear, uh, or the psychic tear, depending on what you're reading. Uh, and it is different, it's created differently than the other two types of tears. It, it includes in it a, a protein-based hormone called prolactin. Uh, there's a neurotransmitter as well called leucine and kephalin which is a sort of painkiller, kind of naturally anesthetized pain when it is released. So it's a sort of a, a natural way of your body protecting itself from hurts. But here's what's interesting about it. Because of the chemical makeup, makeup, makeup of emotional tears. It means that they are denser and stickier, which means that when you cry them, they come down your cheeks slower and stay more visible so that other people see it and come to comfort you. Your body was naturally wired up in such a way that when you cry, it sends signals out for people to come and bring you comfort. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What a good and creative God we serve. And this is so, you know, if you've ever like had something in your eye, you get the irritant tear, it just kind of goes down your face, it dries out almost instantly. It's your body saying like, hey, don't worry, it's fine, it's just something annoying in my eye. But when it comes from an emotional place, it stays on there a little bit longer and it's a little bit more visible so as to say, I'm mourning and I need comfort. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Indicator number three of a blessed life, when I am not overly impressed with myself. <laughs> Verse five, Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I love, I've always loved this word. Uh, it's the Greek word "praus." Uh, it's also sometimes expressed as "proutes," meekness. Uh, it is traditionally a word that we tr- we translate as sort of this uh, power under control. If you look at this word, the way it's used in ancient Greek outside of the Bible, it's often used to describe uh, Greco-Roman war horses. These animals that were incredibly powerful and and, and just uh, able to you know trounce over people and and cause all kinds of chaos and destruction in the context of war, but were so disciplined that on a command they would stop and remain at bay. Power under control. So it's important that you understand this, that meek does not mean weak, right? We sometimes equate those things in our English language. Jesus is not saying, blessed are the weak. He's saying, blessed are the meek. There's a sense of humility in this because, because one who is meek understands that there is some kind of power, there is some kind of substance to be offered, but it is under control. It is at, it is at the, the whim of, of discipline or instruction, I love this definition, uh, this is one way that it's been translated as well, and I've used this before, and, and I just think it's great. Meekness means to not be overly impressed with one's own self-importance. I, I love that, I think that is such a, a, a wonderful way to translate this word. One of the values that we have here at Sitting on a Hill, I, I say this as often as, uh, as it contextually makes sense, is uh, that we take what we do here very seriously, we just don't take ourselves too seriously. We're extraordinarily impressed with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are very impressed with the work of the Holy Spirit. We're just not too impressed with ourselves. We think very highly about the authority of Scripture and the sufficiency of Scripture. We just don't think too highly about those who expound upon it. I believe that this mindset is an indicator of a blessed life, because hear me when I say this, that's not a natural way of thinking. This is a mindset that's birthed out of the Holy Spirit uh, that creates a sort of gentleness in me that leads me to a place of humility so as to not see myself as something greater than what the Bible says I am, which is uniquely created in God's image but frail and deeply flawed because of sin and in need of a Savior. And and so when we are able to see ourselves in this way and operate with a profound sense of reverence for God and for his kingdom and for very little reverence towards ourselves, that is indication that the Holy Spirit is at work in that person's life because it's not a natural position. The natural flesh position says, I love me some me, right? And so when, when the Spirit of God begins working in me and brings me to a place where I'm not overly impressed with myself, that's evidence of his power in my life. It produces this sort of gentleness, which even that in and of itself is not seen as a strength, is it not? I mean, let's be real. You don't win wars with gentleness. When God said uh, to Moses and then eventually to Joshua, go and take the land that I've given you, the land of Canaan, He didn't say, and go and take it with gentleness. He said, take it by force, by war. But we have to understand in the church, our kingdom is not of this world, but of another world a future heaven and an earth. And so Jesus reminds us that blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Not right now. You're not gonna inherit the earth right now, but one day you will. When I remake the heavens and the earth, one day you will inherit it. How are we doing so far? How blessed are we? Let's look at number four. I know I am blessed when I actually desire to do the right thing. When I actually desire to do the right thing, look at verse six. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So listen to this, apart from God's grace in my life, I never, key word never, hello? <laughs> I never desire anything that is righteous. It's not in my nature. Psalm 14, verse 2 and 3, says, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man. Such a beautiful picture, right? God, peek it out over the clouds, over, over his children. <laughs> to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. There are none who seek after God or who desire to do good. There are none who naturally hunger for righteousness. So we can say we're truly blessed then when I desire to do good because it means the Lord has begun to soften and change my heart. Let's be honest about something. How many of you feel like you're doing a crappy job of being a Christian? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I feel like it every day, right? You... You love Jesus, but you fall into the same old sinful trap sometimes. You love the church, but you don't always come, and you don't even really have a very good excuse for it when you don't. You love the Bible, but it's been on your coffee table for weeks, and you've not opened it. And so you, you live with this sort of dissonance, right, of, man, I love God and I love Jesus and I love the church, but I, I don't seem to be doing the things that, that I feel like I should be doing as a Christian who loves the Lord and loves the Bible. And, and, and maybe some of you struggle so bad that you're not even convinced you're actually saved as a result of it because a real Christian wouldn't fail this much, right? And, and I want you to understand the emphasis here of this word hunger. It's a word that, that conjures the idea of desire. I am blessed when I simply desire the right thing, not necessarily when I, when I do the right thing. I'm certainly blessed when I do the right thing, there's no doubt about that. But the mere desire to do the right thing is in and of itself a blessing because it is counter to our nature as fallen individuals. So often, Many of you feel like God is not working in your life because you still struggle with some sin, and the mere fact that you are struggling with it is indicative of God's work in your life because apart from the Holy Spirit in your life, you wouldn't be struggling against it. You would gladly give yourself over to it with zero regret. The fact that you struggle does not make you a bad Christian. It makes you more like the Apostle Paul. Remember what Paul said in Romans 7, verse 15? He says, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate. How many of you can relate to that? How many of you have ever done something sinful and thought, what is happening right now? Why am I doing this? I know this is wrong. I don't understand why I'm doing this, but I keep doing it. Here I am. I'm doing it anyways, and I know it's wrong. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, I don't get it. I don't understand it. I can't figure it out. Why do I keep doing these things that I don't wanna do? He goes on in verse 18. He says, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I mean, did you hear that? This, this is, the desire is good, but I can't always do the thing that I desire to do. He says in verse 19, for, for I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. I keep on doing the thing I don't want to do and the thing I want to do, I keep putting off and I can't figure out why. Hear me clearly, I'm not making excuses for your sin. Sin is wrong, it should be confessed and repented of every single time. But listen to me, if you are not only grieved by that sin but you actually have the desire to do the opposite of that thing, it is evidence of God's work in your life and that is a blessing. You are blessed if that's where you are because God has birthed in you something supernatural that is otherwise not a part of your nature. Jesus says, blessed are you who hunger for righteousness for you shall be satisfied. Are we having fun yet? Fifth indicator, how are we on time? Okay, good. I know I am blessed when I am merciful to those who wrong me. Oh man, here we go, verse seven. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. What is mercy? What does mercy mean? Mercy is the ability to look past someone's wrongs and treat them according to how God tells me to treat them, not how I think they deserve to be treated. That's one way you could think of mercy. The ability to look past someone's wrongs and treat them how God tells me I should treat them, not according to what I think they should be treated. When someone wrongs me, they are guilty, they are wrong, they deserve judgment, they've sinned, however you want to couch it. Mercy is the ability to look past that and give grace instead. And Jesus says, this is very practical, the reward for showing mercy is what? That you will receive mercy as well. Now, what does that mean? I think we can understand this particular statement in one of two ways. And I, and I think actually it's, it, they're not mutually exclusive. I think it's both. They, they, this works out in two different ways. I think in one way it can be understood that you will, uh, by showing mercy, receive mercy from other people. In general, this is just a very practical, I think, truth or reality of, of the human condition, that when I treat people with mercy they are more likely to treat me with mercy in the same way. I I think you'll agree with this. If if you are slow to anger, if if you are a very forgiving person, if you are someone who gives a ton of grace, it is going to be naturally easier when you make a mistake to show you mercy because you're the kind of person that always gives it. On the other hand, if you are harsh and quick-tempered, and judgmental towards other people, you're always pointing out other people's faults, people are going to just be waiting for you to slip. You know anyone like that? And what is your spirit towards them the moment they make a mistake? Aha! Idiot! Right? Justice, right? I mean, it just feels so good to see them mess up. And I think very practically, if we are merciful... It's much easier to give you mercy. But I also think that in in a very real way, this applies to our relationship with God as well, that when we are merciful, we receive mercy from God additionally. In the next chapter, actually, chapter six of Matthew's gospel, Jesus is gonna teach his disciples how to pray. And uh, we we remember this as the Lord's Prayer. And and it echoes this idea in this prayer of mercy for mercy, this concept of of mercy for mercy. Uh, I feel really weird. This is just a personal thing for me. I feel really weird about just like ripping one thing out of the Lord's Prayer and talking about it without having actually recited the whole thing. So if if you want to read it with me or recite it with me, uh, let's say the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And by the way, if you memorize that with, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. It's beautiful. It's not in the earliest manuscripts of the Bible. I hate to kill your dreams, but it's true. Uh, the, the King James put it in there in the 1600s because in the 1600s, we didn't have the early manuscripts that we possess today, uh, but it is beautiful and I, I am okay with you because it just sounds epic. For thine is the king, right? It just sounds epic. But notice, notice what Jesus says in this prayer. Forgive us our debts, In what way? As we have also forgiven our debtors. There is this sort of mercy for mercy idea here, right? In other words, we are to pray in a way that that when we ask God to give us mercy, that the kind of mercy He gives us should reflect the same kind of mercy we've given others. So, if I am someone who is regularly being merciful or forgiving to other people, I am asking God to give me, grant me mercy and forgiveness in the same manner that I have done it for other people, which is why this is a hard prayer to pray. Because if you're someone who doesn't regularly give forgiveness and mercy, you have to pray that line knowing God's going to treat me the way I treated everybody else. (laughs) Now, He may not treat you that way, God is forgiving and merciful on His own accord but it's the posture of prayer that that Jesus is talking about here. Do we really desire God to give us the same kind of forgiveness and mercy we are willing to shell out? That That should change the way you think about these things. That should change and shape the way you treat other people. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Let me give you a truth, and this is an important one. Mercy does not mean ignoring others' wrongs. It means acknowledging that I am just as guilty as they are. This is is so, so important. Let me say it again. Mercy does not mean ignoring others' wrongs. It means acknowledging that I am just as guilty as they are. When I give mercy to those who have wronged me, I'm not ignoring what they've done. I'm not turning a blind eye to the sin that they have committed. I am simply recognizing I'm just as guilty as they are. I'm just as in need of God's mercy as they are, and so I'm gonna give to them what I also desire to have. So understand this, to be merciful then means to be self-aware. It means to have an awareness of the the true condition that you really have or that you are really in. If you are someone who sees yourself as uh, great, you're overly impressed with yourself, you're not meek, you're gonna have a hard time giving mercy because you're going to think that you deserve it. And that you deserve fair treatment. And when someone doesn't give you fair treatment, you're going to hold them much more harshly than they should be treated by a sinner in need of a Savior. Number six, I know that I am blessed when I allow the truth of God to move from my mind to my heart. Verse eight, Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, for they shall see God. Now, what does this mean? The word pure here, katharos, it's a word that that literally means clean. It's hard to hear Jesus' words here and not think of Psalm 5110 and the hymn that uh, was inspired by that psalm. Uh, It's a prayer or an appeal to God. Uh, If you know it, uh, it's the one that says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. This is a prayer, right, an appeal to the Lord to radically change the innermost part of my being, to conform not only my actions to his will, but my intentions to his will as well, to change how I not only treat other people, but how I think and feel about other people as well, and ultimately how I think and feel about God and myself in relation to him. When God does this, when God creates a clean heart within me, a pure a pure heart, this is a blessing because again, as all of these as we figured out, they're not natural this is not a natural condition. The natural condition is like the opposite of all of this. And so when I begin to exhibit any of these indicators, it's, it's an indicator that the, the Holy Spirit is alive and working in my life. This, this one in particular, uh, this sort of pure heart or clean heart, this is central to the mission of City on a Hill. If you've been around here for any amount of time, you know that, that, that we are very, very interested in seeing the Word of God change your heart. We value the Word of God. We study The Word of God very deeply. If you've been in one of our live Bible studies in the last at least few years, we're walking verse by verse right now uh, through the Scripture. We have a long heritage of that, going all the way back to when Alan McBrayer was here. He had a a very similar format. We love the Word of God. When I preach and teach up here, you're going to hear me pull apart the passages. We're going to interact with the language. We're going to unpack the history and the context. But listen, all of that is great. None of it matters. If the knowledge of God's word never moves from your head, your thick head, (laughs) to your even thicker heart, none of it matters if it never impacts your life and your decisions, if it never changes the way that you interact with other people, If, if it never moves from just information to transformation, And my hope is that through the preaching and teaching ministry that God has given me, that your heart will change. And I don't mean the organ in your chest. I mean the inner essence of who you are. My prayer is that you will be changed as a human being, that you'll not just simply know more theology and doctrine, but that that theology and doctrine would penetrate your soul and that it would change the very essence of who you are, not by my power, not by your power, but by the power of the Spirit of God, that it would purify your heart, And if you can say that that has happened and maybe it has just started happening, maybe over the last months or years, maybe you got into the process and began to unravel some of the things in your life and in your heart that have prevented you from allowing the Word of God to transform you. Maybe it's been happening to you for for several years and you're seeing the fruit of that kind of life change in your heart. Let me say to you, you are blessed. You are blessed of God if you can say that. Don't ever forget that. Because again, knowledge does not do anything if it remains knowledge, if it remains information. It has to move into a transformative process and that only happens by the hand of God. And so when it happens, we can say, I have a blessed life. I'm blessed. Number seven, we're almost done. I'm willing to do what is necessary to make peace. I know I am blessed when I'm willing to do what is necessary to make peace. Verse nine, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. I I think Jesus' words here are almost certainly connected to Psalm 34. Jesus has a a, a habit, a routine of throughout the gospels uh, anchoring his teaching off of the Psalms, which makes a lot of sense. They're, They're all about him. Uh, but, but Psalm thirty four eleven it reads this way, come, O children, listen to me, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So you have the children of God or the sons of God is how Jesus phrases it, and they're learning what the fear of God looks like. And the, the psalmist spells it out. In, in verse 14, this is what he says, he says, to turn away from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it. So as God's people, we are, we are not only to turn away from evil and to do good, but we are to seek after peace. We are to pursue it. We are to do anything possible to obtain it. Paul says something very similar to this in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. He says, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all people. Now, it's crucial that you understand that Jesus uses the term peacemaker and not peace. Keeper, because they are very different things. There's a difference between the two. Peacekeepers avoid hostile situations. Just trying to keep the peace, so I'm just avoid it, tiptoe around it, right? They avoid hostile situations. Peacemakers end hostile situations. Peacekeepers avoid uncomfortable confrontation. Peacemakers move through it. In fact, they see it as necessary in order to obtain peace. We live life, again, in a fallen world. Confrontation is just simply a part of it, it's a reality. There's gonna be disputes, there's gonna be disagreements. Last week we talked about that in the book of Philippians, uh, Philippians 4.2, when Paul talks about Euodia and Suntuke to live in harmony with one another because they had been at odds with one another, there was a dispute happening. Paul doesn't avoid the confrontation there, he calls them out by name. Because to be a peacemaker, means that you must be willing to do what is necessary to arrive at peace, even if it means confrontation. This is countercultural. I need you to understand this. This is countercultural, not only to the world, but sadly to the church today as well. People want to pretend that Christians should just be non-confrontational people. Now, to be clear, we're not to be quarrelsome individuals. We're not to be quick to fight with others. We're not to be easily offended, okay? But we absolutely must be confrontational if necessary. Practically, what this means is that when you know Christians are in a quarrel with one another, you do what is necessary to bring peace to them. And You may be thinking, well, I don't want to be involved in all that. Well, that's fine. You're not a peacemaker then. Now, understand, it doesn't mean you personally involve yourself all the time. Sometimes you're, you're not the best person to jump in and make, those, make that happen. But, but then you get the best person involved. You understand there is a problem here. I may not be the best person to jump into this, but I know someone who will. Would you please go? We need to get you guys together. Y'all need to talk. This is not okay. We need to make peace. We're going to do whatever is necessary to get there. Be willing to do anything to obtain it. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of and daughters of God. <laughs> Last, number eight, we'll do this one quickly. I know I am blessed when I suffer for my faith. I know I am blessed when I suffer for my faith. Verse, verse 10 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Not when you are persecuted for being a butt, okay? That's not persecution. That's cause and effect, all right? But when you are honoring God, when you are obeying Jesus and you are taking radical stands and you are doing things that are, that are just absolutely offensive to the world and it sparks persecution, ridicule, name calling slander bitterness resentment whatever it is Jesus says you're blessed because you're actually modeling Christ because Christ himself was persecuted and killed for the gospel Peter the apostle says something very similar first peter 3:14 he says but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake you will be hashtag #blessed Let me ask you, how, how blessed are you? How, how much of a blessed life are you living? Have you stopped trying to live on your own power? Do you grieve over the effects of sin, the loss that sin rots on this world? Are you overly impressed with yourself or, or have you been humbled? Do you desire to do the right thing? Are you merciful to others who have wronged you? Have you allowed the truth of God to penetrate your heart? Are you willing to do whatever it takes to make peace? Have you suffered for your faith? You may not be on a beach in Hawaii, and that's okay. Because if God has done any of these things in your life, you are blessed. You are living the blessed life. Because these are only things that happen when God is at work in your life. And that means he's working on you. That means he's not done with you. And any time he is active in my life... I'm blessed. Pray with me. Father, thank you for reminding us that, that our idea of blessing is sometimes quite different than yours. And certainly we acknowledge and we are grateful for every good and perfect gift that comes from your hand. But we also acknowledge, God, that, that blessing is so much more than that. And, and, and really we can think of blessing ultimately as uh When you are active in our life, when you are doing things in our life that only your hand is capable of doing, we look to you with gratitude. We recognize we're not worthy of the work in our life, but God, being rich in mercy, has made us alive together with Christ. We rejoice in that. I pray for those this morning who who do not know Jesus, who have not been made alive by the the power of your Spirit. And I pray, God, that this morning they would hear the gospel, that they are imperfect and fallen, that they do things they don't want to do and they don't do things they want to do, but that you have made a way for forgiveness of sin and for eternal life through belief in your Son, Jesus. And I pray that this morning would be a, moment, a morning where, where they believe that and they enter into, for the first time, eternity as an adopted son or daughter of you, our great king. How we love you, how we thank you for the work that you do here in this church. We do not take it for granted. We see it, we're thankful for it. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Be blessed, y'all. Hey, next week, uh, you're gonna get uh, the, uh, the pirate pastor himself, Dr. Reeves, back in the house, and so... Uh, Yeah, yeah, excited to have him here. I will not be here, but I will be back on the 30th to close us out. God bless you. We'll see you.